Well, I am really excited for this opportunity to um, share with you today. Through this journey, I have really come to appreciate the amount of effort and the weight of responsibility that it takes every time our pastors prepare to bring God's word before us. And every time they create those opportunities to invade our lives, healing, renewing, regenerating, restoring. And so I just want to start right away by saying thank you to Pastor John and to Pastor Michael for their faithful service to this family and this body of believers, because through this journey, I've come to appreciate you in a whole new way. So thank you very much. It's a good thing there's not a camera following me because they would be dizzy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we invite you here to unleash your Holy Spirit into this room. We invite you to invade our minds, our lives, and our distractions. Do what only you can do today, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And may we leave here changed so that our very faces, our words, and our actions become extensions of our love for you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we're going to dive in. We're in our series of heroes and villains of the Old Testament. And today we are hitting on a woman named Deborah. But to truly understand her world and to her role in God's plan, we need to take a ride back in a time machine, way back into Genesis. Well, during a time of great corruption on the earth, Noah, who is most famous for building the ark, he had put a generational curse on one of his sons, Ham, for intentionally seeing his father's nakedness when Noah was passed out drunk. Awesome story. You should check it out sometime. Ham was the father of the Canaanite people. Now we're going to fast forward. Now Moses led Israel out of Egypt, out of captivity, and God chose that moment to renew his covenant, his promise with him. And he said, I will never break my covenant. God was referring to that covenant that he had made way back to Abraham in Genesis 17. And it said, he said in Genesis, I will give to you all the land of Canaan. We just talked about where he came from. For an everlasting possession. And I will be Israel's God. Now this was the promise. And God's promises kept are like the caffeine in your morning coffee. It keeps your life energized and it keeps you moving forward. I thought some of you could relate to that. Now we're going to pick up the story. So after multiple delays and wandering around in the desert, the Israelites finally reached that promised, but now inherited by idolatrous people's land, and he started to conquer the inhabitants under Joshua's leadership, but they never finished the job. Life lesson number one, finish the job that God gives you to do. See, one of those kingdom states that they didn't finish the job with was Canaan. 
And that land was between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, an area of about 50 miles. And their boundaries went north to Dan and south to Beersheba, about 150 miles. So this started the cycle of disobedience. All because Israel never finished the job. You see, God gave Israel two specific commands regarding Canaan. And he said, you shall make no covenant or agreement with the Canaanites or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. In other words, you're going to get caught in their vices. That warning was blunt. You will tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars. That reminded me of a time when I was teaching my kids at home. I have five of them biologically and many more in my life. Anyway, that reminds me. So we were talking about Gideon and how God told Gideon that he should go and tear down his father's idols. And I said to the kids, just imagine if God told you to go and tear down your dad's model train set. (laughs) What do you think that would, what would happen? And Aaron just quickly replied, you better make sure it's God telling you. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's a great life lesson right there. And God told Israel exactly what to do. Otherwise, he said, if you don't do as God commanded, then dot, dot, dot. And he goes on to list all of the terrible consequences that would come from disregarding the commands. So now let's reboard the time machine and jump ahead to Judges. So our story of Deborah today takes place starting in Judges 2, but mostly in Judges 4 and 5 if you want to take a peek in God's word. So in Judges 2, it says, And God said, again, he said, I will never break my covenant with you. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Now there's a parent's favorite question. What have you done? Now two of my kids are here today, so I'm apologizing in advance. What is this you have done to the four-year-old daughter hiding in the laundry room, now covered from head to foot in gooey cocoa powder? What is this you have done, high school son, who put the car in drive instead of reverse inside the garage? I learned how to dry wall repair after that one. What is this you have done, angry son, who kicked two holes in the drywall while on his timeout on his bed? Yeah, we got a new wall left out of that one, too. What is this you have done? Three-year-old son, upon discovering that he had played tornado across the top of his dad's entire train layout, knocking down every building. What is this you have done, ten-year-old son, as he was about to push start on the microwave into which he had put a closed soda can because he wanted to get the fizz out? That's in part B. (laughs) 
Just as my children learned that choices and actions have consequences, so God said, therefore, I will not drive out those foreign nations completely out. But they will become as thorns in your sides. They will become thorns in your sides, like a, like a poke or an annoyance or an irritation. Their gods are going to be a snare. Snares are intended to catch, and once caught, they do not let you go very easily. So during this cycle of promise, disobedience, oppression, occupation, promise, disobedience, oppression, occupation, along comes our hero of the day, a lady named Deborah. Now, she lived sometime between Joshua's death and the rise of the monarchy with King Saul. Judges 4 tells us her story. And as, Judge, as Deborah grew into adulthood, she lived in a post-Joshua community of Jewish believers who had disobeyed and had assimilated with the cultures and religious practices of their neighbors. Careful, we're not so different. Some of those practices included idolatry and pagan rituals. Nations like Canaan, who had once feared the God of Israel, now took advantage of their weakness outside of that covenant promise due to Israel's disobedience. And they turned against them. They destroyed their fields, killed their children in child sacrifice, and they left God's people poor and helpless. Canaanite King Hadad was terrorizing and brutalizing the Jews at the time that God positioned this remarkable woman, Deborah, to lead her people in the role of prophetess, judge, and deliverer. So who were the judges? Well, from under the weight of that political terror and oppression, Israel cried for help to God. And he heard their cries because he always does. And he raised up a whole series of judges to rally Israel and drive out the oppressors once more. As with all the judges, Deborah was given authority. She was an arbitrator with legal administrative authority. So when Joe and Jerry couldn't agree on who was supposed to maintain the olive tree that straddled their lot line, she was the one who heard the case. She used her strong skills of discernment to pronounce sentences. At other times, she might be called up to clear up accusations like, Rebecca claims that I'm taking more than my fair share of grain out of the field. Or she might vindicate a man's integrity if he was perhaps falsely accused of cheating another man on the price of a table that he had built. She navigated the stuff of everyday life. She could condemn wrongdoing, mete out punishment, or even execute judgment. She was an ancient Judge Judy on steroids. <laughs> but as a judge, she had an additional responsibility to lead the people through war from Israeli enemies like Canaan. Deborah must have had a pretty amazing inner strength to deal with all those legal cases. Because I'm guessing that probably half the people weren't very happy with her after their case was heard. But I do believe that she was the original sweetie. You know how I know that? 
because her name means honeybee. Now, bees are an interesting little critter. That same little creature that produces that sweet, sweet nectar can also deliver a pretty nasty sting. Well, I imagine that that sums up Deborah pretty well. She was married to a man named Lepidus, and his name means torches, which got me to wondering if that word meant that he led his family strongly with his torch, or, in English, if he wreaked havoc wherever he went because he torches everything. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it did tell us that Deborah was born into the tribe of Issachar, who inherited that land west of the Jordan River, southwest of the Sea of Galilee, including Mount Tabor, the Canaanite land. This was her neighborhood. She probably climbed Mount Tabor as a kid, and she probably played along the Kishon River. She had explored the Jordan River and drank the wine originating in the lush valleys between the two rivers. As an adult, Deborah was appointed by God himself to judge over Israel. She was the only judge who was also called a prophetess, a spokesperson for God, a divinely inspired woman. Now, Southside family, let's just take a moment and pause the story for a second. And I want you to even look around the room. Is God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as such, God didn't stop divinely inspiring women in ancient times with Deborah. In fact, he still speaks through his people, all of his people today. Who among us maybe have you discounted as someone unable to deliver a message from the Lord? Who among us are you sitting next to who you maybe need to listen to today? to hear a message, to heed, and to act upon it. Now, back to the story. Deborah was the fourth judge of Israel and the second longest rule of 40 years. She's the only female judge mentioned in the Old Testament, which made me wonder, like, why is she the only one? In fact, why is she one at all in such a profoundly patriarchal society? Well, the answer is because she is the one who God chose to use in that moment for his purpose. Because he can use anyone. He can use kids. I just told you a story where one of my kids gave me a word from God. He can use teens, young adults, mature adults, more mature adults. He can use anyone. Now, as a judge, a judge needs a place to hear their legal cases, right? So where was Deborah's courthouse? Hers was nothing as fancy as the Supreme Court. No. Israel brought their disputes to Judge Deborah under a date palm tree. Now, a date palm tree is certainly a more informal setting, This is a stark contrast to the usual place where business was transacted in the city gates, sitting on a cold, hard, hewn rock boulder. 
I would imagine that under a date palm tree, you could probably catch the breeze and some shade from that hot Mideastern climate. And besides, it's a little more relaxed and putting people at ease. The tree had an added bonus. It came fully stocked with fresh snacks. Dates. So you know, our pastoral staff has done something similar with their office space and their conference room. You know that there's an intentional desire there to increase efficiency, but also to have a relaxed haven into which people who need pastoral care and concern can go and have peace. So Deborah lived between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. She was off the main roads, trying to avoid direct conflict with the Canaanites. You know, I believe that Deborah's walk with God must have been deep and had been rooted in her strong faith, formed through a lifetime of struggles from living under such a political, oppressive regime. She carried the burden of her people and their history. She knew the promise, the covenant. She likely agonized before God on behalf of her people. She daily presided over cases, many of which were the direct result of generational disobedience. It must have been emotionally wearying. Now, I've coached and mentored a lot of teenagers and young adults over the past 32 years, including my five biological children. So when a teen girl pulls you into a room to tell you that she just met her biological father, but he wants nothing to do with her, or your son calls to say he made some bad choices and could he move back home? I have had seasons of agonizing prayer, of crying out to God to move, to do what only he could do. I wonder if God awakened Deborah into a a prayer sleep that I've come to recognize. I'm sleeping, and yet somehow I'm consciously praying on behalf of someone that God has brought to my mind in this way. I've prayed for some of you in this way. I've prayed for healing, for comfort, for protection, for direction. And sometimes that the person would get caught and that always that they would recognize God's voice as his. That they would understand and follow after God. That they would know that God is relevant and anxious to be part of your daily life. That there is nothing that you can do to weaken God's love for you. There is nowhere, nowhere you can go, no school, no dorm, no bar, no vacation, no pill, no job, nowhere you can go where you can escape his presence. He sees and he already knows. But like Deborah, I also realize that we serve a God who is just And there are consequences for choices and actions and justice to be served. Now let's transition over and look at how did Deborah carry out her role as a prophetess? In Judges 4-6, we get the rest of the story. Now there's a pretty cool, crazy finish 
to the battle, but we're not going to get into that today in chapter 5. You go home and read that to your children. That one will be exciting. But in Judges 4, Deborah sent for Israeli military commander Barak, called Thunderbolt, lightning, known as the flashing sword. You've got to love these names. I wish we had those kind of exciting names. Well, Barak, being the strong military commander that he is, is hiding up in the hills, up north, in Kadesh. Ironically, it was one of the cities of refuge, known as a safe place. Barak was trying to stay under the radar of Canaanite King Jabin of Hatsor II, who lived in Hatsor just a couple of miles away. King Jabin's name means, ironically, God observes. Oh. Oh, yeah, God observes, all right. He observed the despicable, idolatrous practices and the treatment the King Jabin lorded over the Israelites. For the sake of his great name, God would work out his justice among the Canaanites, and he would use a middle-aged woman and a timid military commander to do the job. Crazy. On any ordinary day, my friends of faith, no matter your age, your gender, your spiritual maturity, or whatever else you use to distinguish yourself, we must put on the spiritual armor of God and be prepared to go to battle to fight for righteousness, discrimination in all forms, immorality, injustice, the meek, the unborn, the old, the addicted, the unloved. But we have to consent to follow the command to be called out of our comfortable, safe place if we're ever to be in a position to do battle for God. That's what Deborah did. So God used Deborah to call out Commander Barak out of his safe city of refuge, his comfortable holy place, asking, Has not the God of Israel, the Lord the God of Israel, lest there be any confusion which God is doing the asking, commanded saying, Go and march to 1,300-foot-tall Mount Tabor, which is a relatively small mountain that's about twice the size of the Washington Monument. Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 volunteer recruits to fight. Not exactly a well-oiled military machine. Well, I love this next part. Because not, God not only specifies the number, but he gives Barak through Deborah, the complete battle plan. You see, God never leaves us alone to do the hard work of spiritual battle. He already has a plan. Now, before we get to Israeli Commander Barak's answer, let's think about what he's being asked to do. And given that men are generally fixers and form mental plans to solve problems quite readily, in just a moment's time, he's going to have to give his response as to whether obey or disobey. And I think in that moment that he strategized how he would quickly recruit 10,000 troops from two different tribes, and then a battle plan probably flashed through his mind of how he could attack the arch enemy commander Sisera. Sisera. 
He might have even spit on the ground at the thought of that name. Because Sisera had terrorized Israel for 20 years. He had built up a war machine, unmatched for his time, that included 900 iron chariots. They held a driver and an archer, and they provided a pretty quick military advantage. In addition, Sisera had 20,000 fighting men at his disposal, double the Israelite count, and no doubt better trained and better armed. Well, finally, Barak, as any good military commander would do, evaluated the risk versus the reward. He may have asked himself, what are my odds of succeeding here? What are our likely casualties? At this moment, given the facts are stacked badly against Israel, Barak's thoughts were interrupted again by Deborah. Women tend to do that. And he may have been taken aback or even a little offended at what she said next. Hey, Barak, God also told me to tell you that he plans to draw out Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, with his chariots and his many troops, just in case you didn't realize how many there were, to the river Kishon. Then and now, God sometimes chooses to use physical phenomenon of nature to work his plans. And that was the case here. So he, God accomplishes his purpose, and always it is to bring him glory to his great name. But Barak must have wondered how a small river flowing through a relatively dry valley would possibly increase his military odds and reduce his casualties. So Barak gives an honest ultimatum. If you, Deborah, prophetess and judge of Israel, will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Well, just think about that strong statement. Why do you think he said that? Perhaps as so many of us, when we're facing hard situations in life, we become afraid, paralyzed by the magnitude of the situation. Or maybe he felt inadequate for the job that he was being tasked with, recognizing that he didn't have the skill set to win the battle. Or maybe he just wanted confirmation from God's prophetess that this was really God speaking, knowing that she would commit to the battle if it were true that it came from God. So Barak's heart cry was really, come with me. And you know, Deborah immediately responds. But she didn't say, what? I did my part. I gave money, I tithed, I taught, I I worked at the door, I worked in the kitchen, I served the children. No, she never pulled rank. She didn't scream, you want me to leave my comfortable date palm tree and go to war? Who do you think I am? Nope. She just genuinely responds, I will surely go with you. Three things that I learned from Deborah's response. Number one, 
always be ready to say yes in response to go with me questions. Number two, when you agree to go with me, you don't do it for secondary gains. Go because I'm called to love and to live Jesus every moment out of gratitude for what he did for me. And number three, when we obediently take on the responsibility to go with me, we don't get to choose the destination and we don't control the outcome. Will you go with me? What a beautiful question. There's trust in that question. There is a bond in that invitation. This is a huge responsibility. Daddy, will you go read a book to me? Mommy, will you go with me to the park? Mrs. R., will you go with me while I talk to a teacher about something I've done? Will you go with me and help me finish high school? Will you go with me to the hospital and sit with me while my son has his treatment and his surgery? Will you go with me on my orchestra trip, Mom? Dad, my friend committed suicide. Will you go with me to the funeral? Mom, will you go with me and help me move back home? Will you go with me and help me make a plan for walk through Bethlehem? Will you go with me for coffee or dinner and great, real, honest conversation? Will you go with me and clean my house? Will you go with me and visit my family in jail? Will you go with me to my house and remove the tree that's in the roof? Let me say it again. When we obediently take on the responsibility to go with me, we don't get to choose the destination, and we don't get to control the outcome. The outcome is God's responsibility. Ours is to be obedient. My brothers and sisters in Christ... There are two responses to consider from this word from God today. Either there is someone in your life, perhaps someone in this very room, who needs to ask you today, please, will you go with me? Or you are the one whose heart is crying out, please go with me through whatever it is. Let's just take a moment and hear from God. Even if you are sitting here and you're resisting him right now, even if you're skeptical about how this works, that's okay. Just ask an honest question to God. He'll hear. He'll answer. Let's just pray together. Father God, is there someone that you have put in my life today whom I need to bravely ask to go with me? Will you go with me through this icky life situation? Or, Father, am I the one who needs to stand in the gap and walk beside one who's crying out, I need help, please go with me through this. Father God, right here, Right now, will you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, invade our thoughts? We, your people, ask you in this moment to reveal to us today whether we are Barak 
or Deborah. Lord, do I need to ask someone to go with me through something? Or do I need to today respond to someone like Deborah and say, I will surely go with you. Show us, Lord. Speak to us. We ask in your name. Amen.